Hello and welcome to Hyped, the podcast for the culturally curious that turns a critical eye on some of the most hyped books, plays, films, music and TV shows of recent years. Join us as we work out where these cultural trends have come from and what they reveal about modern society. I'm Zoe Strimple, columnist, dating expert and historian of gender in modern Britain. And I'm Tom Stammers. I'm a historian of France and a cultural glutton with a weakness for all things 19th century. Zoe and I have been debating and consuming culture together ever since we were at university, um, which now feels indeed so long ago that the Plantagenets were on the throne. <laughs> yes, I think I was Eleanor of Aquitaine. <laughs> <laughs> this week we're talking about um, not exactly a TV show, but the explosive bombshell interview between Meghan and Harry and Oprah, which as well as having more than 17 million viewers on the night in the US alone um, and 12 million in Britain um, has just completely dominated the media ever since, well, almost, and been pretty much all anyone has wanted to talk about for weeks. Carol Midgley in The Times described it as a televised napalm raid on the palace, which gives you some sense of the like scorched impact of the interview. Uh, and The Telegraph wrote that, quote, over two jaw-dropping hours, Meghan and Harry burned their bridges while Oprah handed them the matches. And before we get into the meat of the interview, I'd just like to give credit to Oprah as the kind of master of ceremonies in all of this, in that she is the world-leading interviewer for these interviews where individuals who are normally reclusive, who are normally shy, who are normally strange, are kind of lured out of their lair um, in order to kind of spill the beans. It's worth remembering that Oprah did the Fergie interview in 1996 when Fergie railed against press intrusion. Um, and more recently, you might think back to the Michael Jackson interview or the Whitney Houston interview. She specializes in doing these interviews with troubled or damaged characters. Um, and I suppose that's where I want to begin, Zoe, and that this was an interview about the royal couple presenting themselves as victims, you know, really showing the damage uh, that they think that they have emotionally and mentally sustained uh, over the course of the past few years. What did you make of uh, Harry and Meghan's claims to be victims of the firm, as they sort of call it in sinister terms? <laughs> well, I, I made, as you can imagine, quite a lot of it. But just first, I think <laughs> you know, interesting what you say about Oprah and her role as the sort of troubled star whisperer. And I think her affect absolutely had something to do with the way she she managed to bring out and stage manage these um this this napalm attack um and this sort of flurry of of insinuations and and victim you know casting themselves as as victim victimology um oprah's affect is is so interesting she almost looked bored at times i mean there was a moment when mm. she was vibrating her foot over her knee as if she was just sort of sitting you know waiting for a delivery to, to arrive, which had been taking too long. So I think I think it was sort of fascinating how she did toggle between this hyper intense gaze and only one or two very, very intense reactions just at the right times. But another time she seemed almost nonchalant or, or bored. <laughs> and I think it was a very yeah. interesting juxtaposition. And I think that it shows not only is she so used to doing the most you know, big scale, high profile things, you know, she's, she's quite a master at it. But, you know, I think that she did do a very interesting job of, of, of making them feel like sort of spilling all. She got that balance between being a friend, which she especially worked up with Megan beforehand uh, when they're sort of chit-chatting about the pregnancy. And then obviously with Harry, she comes in a little harder, but, but it, was, it, was, it was quite good. Also the way she, she dressed, it was neither, none of them looked particularly good. Uh, there was a homeliness. 
Um, which it was, was unintimidating, the wardrobe. The wardrobe was unintimidating. I mean, Megan's dress was surprisingly dowdy, but but all of this was supposed obviously in sort of ingenious contrast to the the sheer kind of shock and awe of what was actually going on. So in terms of, you know, this thing about Harry and Meghan as victims of the firm, oh my God, they, this, oh, it was like, you'd think they were really the most, you know, starving, underprivileged people on the earth. And I think what's so fascinating is that Meghan, especially, was so brilliant at making herself incredibly sort of almost sympathetic, almost a Madonna figure, that just this mother trying to do her mm. best, being taken down by these sinful commoners and the royals obviously the commoners mean mean the tabloids but meanwhile she's busy stirring up like potentially extremely destructive and potentially quite egregious stuff depending on what your stance on the royal family is so i thought that was that was interesting we have this so-called victim who's actually got immense power the power to destroy a 1200 year old uh, extremely important institution then there were the specific claims of being a victim you know, poor me, nobody gave me an introductory video as to how to be a duchess. Mm. Um, I had to Google the national <laughs> anthem, you know, because I hadn't Googled them before. As she said, I didn't Google, I didn't, she said, I did no research. Oh no, like how awful that you had to kind of quickly learn how to curtsy in the Jaguar on the way to meet the Queen of England. So there was a sort of bizarre sort of self-pitying there. Like it's, it wasn't, quote, her job to kind of have to do any work to fit into this new role. I and mean, she talked about it constantly as a job, you know, in my job as the Duchess. Well, most people think that it's their job to prepare for their jobs. So I don't know why she was so resistant to that. I mean, she did say she's glad she didn't because it would have made her so in her head about it all. Before I monologue for 5 million hours on this very long <laughs> the ways in which Megan has presented herself as a victim, what do you what did what was your what were your thoughts on the way therapy, which came up so much in various ways, either explicitly or implicitly? How did that play into the narrative? I was very struck at the impact of therapy on Harry, especially, and that there was a moment in the interview where he said that he'd done the work, quote unquote, um, that instantly made me think that we were looking at a very traumatized kind of Prince of Wales. And and I suppose that this is the kind of moment to say that the other very strange thing about this interview was although it was about the treatment of Megan the ghost of Diana was constantly hovering in shot. I mean, they were spliced with all of the old footage. We've all been watching the recent series of The Crown, which means that Harry can make an allusion to something like the Australia tour, and we all nod our heads and think, oh yes, I remember that episode. Yes, I can see the parallel. Um, I thought it was as much about his relationship with his, his wife as it was about his relationship with his mother. And so he, in some ways, was the was the most fragile person in the interview. And I And I felt... And um, at various moments, Harry seemed very angry, but at other moments, Harry genuinely seemed kind of a bit lost and bereft. In terms of Meghan's victimhood, I think the ring thing that really struck me is how, and not just clueless she was, but kind of entitled. And I know it's easy to, to criticize her at the moment, but you clearly get the sense of a couple who loved being popular, who loved being the kind of breath of fresh air, who wanted to change the monarchy, but did not feel comfortable becoming the establishment. The moment that it became a job, exactly as you say, Zoe, the moment that it became just expected that they were just part of the furniture, that's when it really started to kind of bite. And you, you get the sense again and again that they wanted it always on their own terms. When she says she was unsupported, she clearly did have aides that she'd been attacked. We know that there were three mentors that Meghan was given by the, by the palace. It's just that they weren't the kind of people that Meghan wanted. Um, and so you, you get a sense tragically that there were attempts to try and help her, but she wasn't willing to take the help precisely because she had a very 
definite sense that what she was was special and that what that her and Harry were doing was different from protocol. Um, how did you think about the way that they thought about their relationship with convention and protocol, Zoe? I mean, it was a bit problematic. Well, it was, and it was unclear what was fair and what wasn't fair. For instance, when she's complaining that they, or stating, accusing, alleging that they did nothing when she was feeling suicidal during her pregnancy, in terms of therapy, you sort of wonder, hang on, what, what exactly were they denying you? They wouldn't let you go publicly to check in at like the Priory or to like some sort of therapeutic retreat in New Mexico, clearly, because that, that's a big story. I mean, that's the thing. But were they really denying you a therapist coming to your to your cottage? I mean, that that seems very unlikely. So the relationship with convention is, is certainly an interesting one. So, you know, I think the palace is flexible enough to allow certain conventions. Men. As I say, I think I'm sure she could have had therapy, in, you know, inconspicuously that, as you say, Harry has had loads. They don't like convention when it makes them do stuff that they don't feel like doing. They don't like that. They don't like being made to sort of stiff upper lip, but they really seem to like convention when it came to the promise of a quote house, I think on palace grounds or just being able mm. to live on quote palace grounds. They were very miffed that as stepping down from senior royals, they, that wasn't sort of obviously part of the package. It's quite funny they mentioned that. And then also this thing about not giving Archie a title very, very, very annoyed that her son is not going to be a prince. So on one hand, she's kind of pushing away in the most overt way, the firm and the whole institution she's married into. But she also wants the title. So she doesn't want the job, but she wants the titles. And she's saying, it's not fair that they're changing the convention just for us. It's like, oh, no, like the, the system of inheritance and titles is not exactly as it always says. It's just strange that that really, really upset them. Well, it was a funny misinterpretation of the laws around protocol as well. You know, this famous 1917 precedent in which, you know, in, in time, Archie, as the grandchild of the monarch, would have become prince. It's just that for a great grandchild, it's at the discretion of the monarch. Uh, and as a result, Harry and Meghan felt it as a personal slight. And that was all bound up with the question about security and so on. Um, but but in terms of this sort of having it on your own terms, as well as that attitude towards convention, I think you can see it in the way that they felt about the media as well. Um, in the, the other thing that they are obviously deeply angry about is the invisible contract that Harry mentions between the palace and the press, that he basically blames the palace for allowing the press to kind of defame his wife and for not standing up and defending her. Um, but I think the other key dimension of the interview, which was never raised, is that the beginning of the fallout with Meghan goes back to the relationship with her father and the fact that the Daily Mail wanted to investigate other aspects of her past, that she was a, you know, and this is, this is where I do think she was treated differently, but unlike young Diana, who came into the family as a genuinely clueless young girl at 19, Meghan came in already having been married, already having a kind of very substantial career, but already having a set of very difficult relationships with, the, with her ex-husband and also with her father. And the moment that the press wanted to investigate that or talk about that, she became incredibly recalcitrant. So, you know, I think the, the, the sort of benefit of the Oprah interview is that it allowed Harry and Meghan to sort of stage their own worldview. Like we really got a sense of how they thought and how they felt. But she does not like difficult questions from the press about, you know, other parts of her family life. And you think that you just got a sense that she felt outraged that the relationship with her father or with her past was a matter of public concern. But when you join the Windsors, it is. Absolutely. And I think there's also an interesting uh, blindness in Meghan 
in the way she does think about the the press, but really specifically what she really means and she says is, is the tabloids, but let's think about what the tabloids are. The tabloids are, you know, working class papers. I, I don't know how else to put it. Hmm. And she is on one hand, oh, she's this champion of the developed people in the developing world. She's this activist for women. She's this activist on matters of, you know, people of color. But there's one vector she seems to give absolutely zero shits about, and that is class. So there's not one tiny bit of compunction there for how she may come across to people whose lives aren't poor or whatever, problems, people who, why they might kind of, I'm not saying she should welcome some of the stuff that was in the tabloids, but I think there would be some degree of restraint or, or some degree of self-reflexivity that somebody else may have been able to understand before just deriding them as gossip rags, mm. uh, specifically. Uh, it, just, it just seems really tone deaf to not understand that actually not everyone reads the New York Times, you know? So there was a sort of amazing lack of understanding of that. As you say, Harry has called the tabloids colonial before. You know, it's, it's just a bit too much. And I think that sort of tone deaf thing of, of overlooking class, not to mention the taxpayer when it comes to moaning about lack of security yeah. and stuff, which is interesting. Um, was also when she says, oh, now after a year of lockdown, people understand what it was like. So she's essentially comparing being a duchess in a palace to lockdown, which is again, an incredibly class blind comment. So that's what I would say um, about, about that. But Tom, I mean, <laughs> if this was indeed an attack on the monarchy, which I mean, I mean, it's not, you know, clearly was, who are the- <laughs> If she asked. If, 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 we know the answer to that. Um, not a conditional if. Um, how, what were your thoughts about how the accusations were delivered? Who came out the most compromised? And um, is there anything else to be said about the kind of constant allusions to Diana? So I think in terms of how were the accusations delivered, I think it was it was a sort of masterpiece in insinuation, mm. um, you know, which is which has been picked up on. But even that kind of most damaging, quote unquote, accusation of all, the one that a member of the family had raised questions about Archie's skin color, you know, when pressed on it, she says, I won't say who it is because it would be very damaging to them. You know, in a in a sense, I'm going to be gracious and not tell you, but through inference and through effectively, um, as I say, through through insinuation, I'm going to really kind of turn the knife. So I th I thought it was very snide, and there were various moments when Oprah asked Meghan, "Oh, so you know who welcomed you?" You know, and asked, sort of solicited compliments from Meghan, uh, and Meghan wouldn't give them. There was this moment where Oprah said, "So that lovely photo of you and Kate at Wimbledon, you know, was it like that? Did you have that friendship?" and Megan very pointedly replied, everybody was very friendly. And so I do think one of the things that's worth thinking about is Megan versus Kate. And like, is it true that that became like the binary in the British press? And, you know, do they represent very different things? I mean, I'll be curious for your views on this, Zoe, but one thing that strikes me is that if Kate's been treated differently, and I do think Kate's had a lot of criticism at first as well. I mean, remember her own humble background, you know, the Middletons, her mother as the air hostess, you know, being called doors to manual, all those mm -hmm. nasty jokes about that. Um, but it's also worth remembering with Kate, the reason that, you know, she doesn't get the same vilification or she hasn't had the same vilification is that she's not preachy, which comes back to what you were saying earlier about Megan, the activist. What rubs people up the wrong way, especially aspects of the tabloid press, is being given lectures in morality by very wealthy 
uh, very privileged people who are otherwise, you know, talking about the environment, but flying around on jets around the world, that it seemed that their kind of ethical piety wasn't backed up by their lifestyle. And as a result, it was all too easy to take a pot shot. Whereas Kate, I don't think ever has that slightly sort of sanctimonious air. Like she hasn't sort of set herself up as um, a kind of figure trying to hector the British public about the way they live. Absolutely. And Kate, I think, comes across as someone who very much is a workaholic in the context of what work means in the royal family. And mm. Megan talks about, oh, it was my job. She's very quick to say, oh, I worked in a frozen yogurt place when I was 13. I've always worked. TV shows work. Yeah, okay, she, she's worked. She wasn't born with a silver spoon in her mouth. But as we see, Kate wasn't either. But Kate is a hard worker. She has to suck it up. Kate hasn't produced one single scandal and she's boring. And that's the work. Yeah. You know, she was once a young woman who paraded in a bikini at a fashion show at university, which is how William saw her. But that's, she was, she kind of did what she needed to do to fit with the family. She's overlooked alleged affairs to do with William and she's never made it all about her. And that is the substance of the work. And it's not glamorous, it's not flashy, but Kate doesn't go around saying she's so silenced as well. I, mean, I would say that Megan, on the other hand, did have one perceptive thing to say, which was that she said, you know, it doesn't, it didn't have to have been Kate is the hero, I'm the villain, or vice versa. And there really is a sort of slip to binarization. So I think that was perceptive. I think she was also, Megan was also fairly perceptive when she was talking about the gap between perception and reality. And I think that probably yes. is quite a big fault line into which people in the royal family can fall into a bit like quicksand. So, you know, everybody's seeing a picture, but actually what you can't ever say is what it's really like. So, you know, I thought that was, I thought that was quite interesting. What did you think of the treatment, the treatment of Charles? <laughs> well, I was going to say, I, I did, I did feel Charles was one of the main casualties of <laughs> the interview. And, and I think probably rightly, and that, you know, it confirms what the crown has told us, which is that Charles is a bit of an emotional cripple. Um, and I'm sure other members of the family just found the position of Harry and Meghan insufferable. Uh, and that's not to say that Harry and Meghan weren't right to feel that they were being treated differently and that they felt very angry. But I think the, the Windsor mindset could not accommodate that fact. Um, you know, they think that they're almost sort of bound into this together, that there's a code of what doing things that you just sort of keep quiet and carry on. And the constant complaints, you know, and complaints that started very early. I mean, it's quite striking listening to that interview that Meghan was suggesting that they'd been thinking about having the exit conversation with the Queen for two and a half years at one point. And you think, right, so within months of being married, you were already looking for the exit. You were already looking for the door. Um, so I'm sure after a time it did get quite wearing, but you do get the sense of Charles as someone who just does not have the emotional flexibility. Um, and I thought it was particularly cruel to, again, have all these invocations of Diana, you know, at a time when you're accusing your father of being useless, you're also dredging up the memories of him as a, a sort of abusive husband. Um, the other person who came out terribly, of course, was William, I thought. Um, and the real sense of rivalry between the two brothers, uh, you know, at one point, Harry says, oh, we're on separate paths, but it must be so galling for William um, that, you know, the, the family is now being criticised for its lack of sensitivity about mental health, when obviously William has been one of the key figures championing mental health in recent years, especially with that initiative Heads Together. So I, I'm sure there is a barely suppressed rage going on uh, within the Cambridges at the moment. Um, how do you think the palace has responded to it, Zoe? I, if there's a choice of responses, one is the palace needs to fire its press officer immediately, which was one sort of major opinion I was hearing, or the palace is an absolute genius. They should quadruple the pay of their press officer. <laughs> I would go with the latter. I thought it was amazingly restrained. 
it was very clever how it, it sort of said, oh, well, if there's a problem, obviously we'll deal with it. We're just going to do it privately. And then there was that, obviously, that beautiful line that everybody loved about recollections. Recollections may vary. vary. Yeah, the recollections may vary that was heard around the world. Um, so I think, so in that sort of, you know, three, wor- three, three words was all it took to basically sh- show that they obviously thought everything they said was complete horseshit. Um, but they did it in this, like, loving way that, sh- you know, it, I think they came across really well. What did you think? Yeah, I thought it was. Uh, I thought it was quite measured. It could have been a teeny bit more expansive, but I agree. They 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 well, sort of. But I think, in a way, the situation called for that level of if we say anything, everything yes. will fan the flames. So that, I think they literally stumbled upon the one combination that both slightly hinted that things weren't just as they seemed based on the interview, but that you know didn't fan flames. And I think it was quite boring, but that was what they wanted to do. And I think mission accomplished. There was one person who obviously escaped attack and that the was a firestorm yeah that was the queen lots of oh no not the queen not the queen there was a bit of sentimentalization on megan's part of oh she's so lovely and i love my grandmother and you know and then it sort of fit with her whole oh all mm. i all i the only job i well the only title i care about is mom so she's trying to stress herself as this good-hearted family woman what did you make of the queen's role she certainly doesn't care about the title of daughter as much as she cares about the title of mom. Um, yeah, no, I, th- I thought it was very tactical to make kind of the Queen and Philip the allies. I mean, Philip not explicitly in the interview, but in 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 the aftermath. Um, at the time when when there was the insinuation of racism, I'm sure like you, Zoe, I instantly thought, well, that's Philip. Uh, and they were in a hurry to that. say, definitely not Philip, especially as he's lying in a hospital at that at that very point. And um, all I'd say about the palace response before we should say something about racism is that, yes, it was very restrained. And I think in the short term, you're right to say it was very concise. And that was a sort of act of genius. I think the long war of attrition is just beginning um, and the bullying uh, kind of ag- accusations, I think, are going to keep kind of um, building. You know, there's a little group apparently in Kensington Palace called the Sussex Survivors, the people who had to work with the Sussexes um, and were completely exasperated by the way they were treated. So I think that what we'll now get, you know, is a much nastier, long running kind of back and forth smear campaign about exactly what it was like working with Harry and Meghan over the past few years. That that means that although the palace is trying to sound placatory, there are definitely people in the royal household who are furious and are keen to try and get the other side across. Um, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> more reasons to buy a tabloid. Um, Zoe, what's your view on that, you know, race. most inflammatory accusation of all the race accusation? Honestly, I'm with Thomas Markle which is basically, it was just a dumb question. It was the type of question that any slightly tone deaf older person might ask. Maybe there was a touch of racism. Why is it assumed that that is a symbol of some sort of deep yeah. enduring racism in the royal family? When actually, let's be quite clear about this, the ism that the royal family has had a very, very bad problem with is anti-Semitism, where mm. Harry wore a Nazi outfit, has never really apologized for that. And obviously the history of Wallace, Wallace Simpson and the other Edward VIII, Edward VIII. The Duke of Windsor. Absolutely mm. rabid not, Nazi sympathizers who did their absolute utmost to stay in with the Nazis. Obviously the Windsors went off and became very anti-Nazi and great, but they, that branch didn't. So there's a really dark history there of, of Hitler sympathizing and the Nazi outfit. So no mention of that. I mean, obviously, like, who knows? Maybe there were, were the odd sort of old racist in the royal family, but... Yeah. Oprah's kind of mock shock and horror was totally disingenuous. You know, Megan is obviously mixed race. She's a beautiful woman. 
I canvassed several old telegraph readers, for instance, Hmm. none of whom mentioned race. They were all happy that Harry was marrying this beautiful American. They thought it would be good for the royal family. And again, class gets lost, privilege gets lost. They're trying to make a point about privilege and race, obviously, because that's what it's all about. White privilege, white supremacy. But they are, they are the Duchess and, and Duke of Sussex who've had an airing to tens of millions of people. And it's just not plausible. I, I find it very hard to, to sit, sit by while they say, oh, actually, we're victims. I think, um, I think you're right to say that it was the slippage. I don't doubt that there probably were racist sentiments and I'm sure they were deeply hurtful and I can understand why they were, you know, why they were felt so painfully by the by the couple. The question is, is it an institutional systemic problem? And I think we're in such a moment at the moment with discourses of racism that everything is assumed to be systemic, that the slippage from saying something rude was said or something inappropriate was said to, and this must be related to the security question, and this must be related to the succession question, and this must be related to not having a house in the palace grounds and stuff, you know, that these things get bundled together. And so you've got a sense of paranoia, I suppose, or a sense of hypersensitivity, at least, within the Sussexes, which means that these slights, which do exist and obviously are unacceptable, are converted into a much bigger worldview of us fee the firm and a whole institution that's sort of rotten to its core. And I also agree with you, Zoe, that they are kind of strangely fascinated with their own racial distinctiveness, that as much as, you know, it's wrong that they should be single, that she should be singled out as racially different, Harry is so keen to talk about her as an ambassador for the Commonwealth. You know, it's all about how she and Archie would have been, you know, chief weapons and it would have done something for the representation of minorities within the royal family. So at some point, they really think race does matter. It's just they want to set the precise terms in which it's ever invoked or is kind of brought into conversation. Um, just some last things that I guess we should touch on, like what impression do you get of how this interview sets them up for the next part of their lives? Like, what do we what did you think about? the glimpse we get of their new life in the United States. Like, how is this the, you know, you know, the name of that famous book on them, Finding Freedom? How much is this their kind of bid for freedom? Oh my God. I mean, there, to me, there's no difference between their life now, their life before. They, they were always plotting to have this life and now they have it. So this life, they were always going to be self-serving. Fine, it wasn't written in the stars, but I mean, the fact that they're now in California and Santa Barbara and on Oprah and signing Spotify deals left and right and what have you, mm. um, there's nothing interesting to me whatsoever about this. This is, I would have been much more interested had they actually stuck it out and embraced the job they had as royals. So when Harry says, oh, the Netflix and the Spotify of it all is just because daddy took away my security. Okay, but I think a more genuine reading of that is that that was that's kind of the plan. And you know, mm. Megan's sort of forced shock that people suggested she just wanted to work on her brand throughout this whole shebang. You know, maybe that's probably a bit unfair. I mean, I, she does seem to be in love with Harry and vice versa, for sure. Certainly vice versa. Yeah. In fact, she's like, oh, like these claims, can you even imagine it? Um, yeah, I think you can imagine it. So if she refuses to give us anything of herself then gets furious at the insinuation that she's, she quits the family, then suddenly, oh, whoops, they've ended up back in LA. I think those claims are a fair speculation. So I think we don't learn anything interesting at all about their new life, apart from just they want to be American celebrities. What do you think? I think they're like chickens. I think they're like dogs really? and they're like chickens. Yeah. And these are things that they could have done in Norfolk. Like the idea that you had to go to Santa Barbara 
to enjoy some time with kind of animals and the outdoors is a was was a little bit hard to swallow. But it was it was nonetheless very revealing of the fact that they think that they finally now found something authentic. I think they say at one point, or that they found something real and something genuine, whereas the rest of the English family are trapped. You know, and there was a sense of almost pity for the for the unenlightened, unemancipated Windsors. You know, living this life of convention. And um, whereas they are like almost like in the Matrix, they're the only ones who've escaped into the real reality, which sort of lies beyond. Um, I think they're in a vulnerable position, though. So while they want to, you know, at the moment, this is a kind of great springboard um, for their new projects. You know, the Archwell Foundation. Um, Harry is actually going to do a show on mental health with Oprah on Apple TV. That you know, that's, that's pending. Yeah. But at the moment, you know, they're of, they're of maximum interest to everybody. But can they maintain that? You know, you know, at what point is this brand going to be of interest in that they're going to need a lot of security for a long, long time? That is going to be very expensive. How are they going to manage to keep themselves relevant and interesting for that length of time? You only have to look at figure like Fergie, you know, poor, poor Duchess of York um, and the sleaziness of what happened to Fergie after she left the family that, you know, she was willing to take bribes from Saudi sheikhs. You know, she then was doing Weight Watchers and Budgie the helicopter that that kind of route out of the royal family leads you having to kind of, you know, form some pretty dubious kind of business decisions and some pretty dubious kind of commercial alliances. So at the moment, they've got it all their own way. But for the amount of money they need and the kind of lifestyle they want, they are going to have to let more and more of the media into their lives. That's a very good point. I mean, and on that matter, I mean, we've got to touch on the, the Piers Morgan affair. How, why has this become such a big part of the culture wars, Tom? And what, what can we conclude about the reaction to it all? And why is it so divisive? What, what has it kind of told us? What have these divisions told us? Well, just on those divisions, I mean, some of the statistics here are interesting. I think uh, if you look at people who sympathize with Meghan, I think 71% of Brexiteers are hostile to Meghan versus 39% uh, of Remainers. So it's interesting how that kind of patriotic, you know, we must defend the monarchy thing, you know, has played out in Britain, that kind of, you know, conservative and Brexit leading forces are quite a much more kind of pro-monarchy. And um, the other big divide, obviously, is generational. Um, and it is amazing to see the disconnect there between the under 40s and the over 40s in terms of which way people felt. Um, I think I'll be interested what you what you made of the Piers rant. I think Piers crossed the line, obviously, when he sort of doubted the sincerity of her emotional health. Like, I, I don't think if somebody says that they feel suicidal or that they've really suffered mentally, I don't think it's your job as an outsider to tell them that those feelings are wrong. And, um, you know, he described her as repulsively disingenuous, which you know clearly is a is ferocious. But I am worried that the criticism of Meghan now is seen as being implicitly racist. You know, that, you know, that Piers, although he spoke out of turn, and I think there's a lot of personal bad feeling there, you know, it seems like there's actually a real feud there. The idea that any criticism of Meghan is construed potentially as an apology for racism or an apology for kind of snobbery, I, I'm quite troubled by. Yeah, I think that sums it up perfectly. I think this discussion about racism has also really illuminated some of the differences between the Anglo, well, some of the differences between the English and the American response to this whole thing. And you touched on Remainers and Brexiteers. I've mm. been in the US throughout this whole thing. And, you know, I've been reading like letters to the New York Times from people in Florida saying, yeah, get rid of the monarchy, it's racist, let the old lady, and this is a quote, let the old lady 
and, you know, die out and then get rid of it all. But don't you think that there's a sort of serious clash? You know, they've moved to America, so they are an American entity now. But isn't there a sort of serious gap in understanding of what the whole purpose of not just royals, but the royals, the Windsors are, and, and that perhaps Americans don't really get it? And could that even be extended to Meghan? And, and, you know, there was no mention of the taxpayer in this. And we're talking mm. British taxpayer. I and mean, what do you think about that sort of Anglo-American divide in the way this has been understood and interpreted? It's interesting to see the Americans who've come out very strongly for Meghan. I mean, unsurprisingly, her very good friend Serena Williams talked about her nobility of character. But Hillary Clinton also coming out for Meghan, I guess, as someone that she thinks, I guess, is a gutsy woman. Amanda Gorman, who obviously was the star poet at the inauguration, she's also spoken out in favor of Meghan and has talked about how the royal family is missing out on her light. So that, that there are such sensitive questions about race and about gender in the United States that, you know, Meghan instantly becomes a hero for a certain kind of progressive opinion in the US, which again, I think is unfortunate because they're not looking at the, the kind of facts of the case. I think the big thing that you touch on there, Zoe, is that from an American perspective, or at least from Meghan's perspective, why aren't the royals just a bit more like the Kardashians? You know, isn't this just another version of celebrity culture? That like meeting the Windsors is like meeting another really famous, you know, celebrity family. Um, and the, the elephant in the room, in which came up periodically in the interview, but is really crucial, is the fact that this is a institution which is accountable to the public because the public is paying for things like security. And I kept feeling that, you know, you know, there's been all this noise about race, but what really the division is about is about money and, you know, who's fitting the bill. And as a result, these questions about what the taxpayer should be expected to pay for the Sussexes, um, that, that that's the really one of the key issues. And it was not properly addressed and doesn't make sense to Americans who don't think about the monarchy as an institution like that. So I think this has, this has, in a way, been a gift for republicanism and certainly the under 40s. Some of the ones that I've spoken to have said, yeah, well, it's high time we got rid of the monarchy. And so this is, this is sort of armed, armed the younger generation with a case study as to why, you know, why the monarchy should go. Although though those reasons are dubious to say the, the least and those even discussions coming out of the Commonwealth countries like New Zealand and mm. Australia about whether they would keep their links with the Queen over this. So it's had quite serious ramifications on that score. But I think the bulk of the English citizenry is, is still monarchical. Um, <laughs> it'll be interesting to see. I think we, where I think England is still a royalist country, but that is largely linked to, to Elizabeth. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in the era of Charles. Um, I actually slightly... Charles III. Charles III. I slightly shudder to think. Tom, I know you and I are sort of staunch uh, royalists, even though we're not, even though we're not so kind of, we're not sort of in love with them, but we, we recognize that constitutionally and in terms of soft power and just yeah. fun, you know, the taxpayer thinks they have a pretty good deal with them, I think. Mm. So Tom, to ask a deeply redundant question, why <laughs> the hype? Well, before I answer that question, let me just say, Zoe, I'm more keen on the House of Bourbon than I am on the House of Windsor. But yeah, I will be described as a staunch royalist. Um, what, all, you know, the very simple thing to say is, uh, I think people wanted to tune into something that they knew was going to be historical. Um, and I think it's not an accident that we've been having these recent discussions about the Bashir interview with Diana in 1995 and the awareness that that was a turning point in the history of the monarchy. Um, and this too was billed as a turning point in the public perception of the crown. Um, and that is indeed what it was. And I do think you know, the, the hype for it was brilliant and that we got these little snippets the week before, which gave you enough to make you realize that this could be quite explosive. But what was remarkable is how compelling it was for the whole two hours. 
I mean, I thought that all the juicy stuff would be in those two little snippets, and then we would just have to sit through sort of slightly more dreary um, small talk. But actually, I found the whole two-hour spectacle um, really quite gripping. Um, and I did feel that precisely because Oprah gave them so much rope, you really got a sense of how they think and how they want to kind of present themselves to the world. I thought it was actually really psychologically revealing. Uh, what about you, Zoe? Well, I think everything you say, I guess all I would just add is that Megan is a sort of interesting story for people. And she even invoked the fairy tale of which she was mm. a part, but also exceeded. She said that their marriage is better than any fairy tale you could imagine. So I think people are always going to go for that. I think, you know, she's also a celebrity that, that walks the line, interestingly, between young and hot and like mm -hmm. mature and substantial activist. And so I think, you know, she's enough of a celebrity, enough of a beautiful celebrity woman for people to be just naturally fascinated. But then she's also got these sort of other sides to her that she's that she's tried to, to bring out in various ways. And then, yeah, it's just a completely gripping psychological drama pitting, you know, a, 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 a sort of so-called underdog, though it's hard to imagine them as an underdog <laughs> against this storied, massive entity. Mm -hmm. So I think I think that pretty much sums it up. And then obviously, like, Oprah is always worth watching in action. And also the pandemic, people have been mm. bored and this is just such a brilliant drama. Um, although I think it genuinely upset and riled a lot of people in the UK. Mm. So, people want uh, to feel angry. Yeah, they want to feel angry. And I think it was a nice chance to feel angry at Americans as well, because I think people were quite annoyed by American, mm. American reactions, sort of mind your own business sort of thing. Anyway, that's all we have time for today, but join us next time for a discussion of the first sale of a JPEG at Christie's for $65 million by a so-called artist named Beeple. <laughs> <laughs>